1: Welcome to the start of a brand new week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We are really getting down to it. Campaigns are starting to make their closing arguments uh, with Election Day just about two weeks from uh, tomorrow. Um, I've come to call that the final day of voting because we have such an extraordinary surge as we did in 2020 of early voting. So November 8th is the final day of uh, voting in the 2022 midterm election. So... We have a lot to talk about in terms of the elections. Uh, We have other news to get to as well. So let me get to the panel right away. Patricia Murphy, a political reporter and a columnist. She writes the Insider, Political Insider column that you read on Wednesdays and Sundays in the Dead Tree edition of the paper. But Patricia, people can see your column in the digital edition uh, uh, sooner than that, typically. And of course, you also oversee the jolt. Which is, uh, I think, the best compendium of items about what's happening in politics in Georgia, and that's at ajc.com. Patricia, are you starting to work seven-day weeks yet?
0: I was working Saturday and Sunday, and so that is a yes. <laughs> I'll bet. Yes, we are hanging in there. It's just, it's just the, the the pace is so frenetic. We know it won't stop until election day, and then we know it might not stop after election day. So, but we're ready. Yeah. You know, this is our this is our go time. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we're, we're all looking at the numbers, especially in that U.S. Senate race, to see if uh, either Herschel Walker or Raphael Warnock get over 50%, considering that the libertarian candidate in that race is drawing a fair percentage of the votes. Charles Bullock is back with us, professor of political science at the University of Georgia. I always say, and I think without argument from anyone, the dean of political science uh, professors, experts in the state, Chuck, you've been doing it for a very long time, and I'm really grateful to you for being on the show today. It's always a great opportunity to be with you, Bill. I look forward to it. Uh, You know, we were talking before the show. Chuck Bullock probably has more reporters from more uh, news organizations across the country (laughs) calling him, emailing him to get his take on what's happening in Georgia. So I feel especially lucky we get him (laughs) on the show with some regularity here. Uh, Tanya Washington is back with us, professor of law at Georgia State University. Tanya, it's great to have uh, you back with us. You said that uh, this semester you're teaching classes in education law, which is really interesting.
2: Absolutely. And as as I shared, Bill, we are building the plane, building the runway, and taking off all at the same time.
1: Because of all, the, all of the new laws about things like uh, critical race theory and Absolutely. You know, uh, uh, affirmative action, which the Supreme Court is taking up, you had higher education, university uh, universities later this month, and, and all the like. Rick Dent yeah. is back with us. I, I, nobody knows more about the political ad scene in Georgia than uh, Rick Dent. He tracks it uh, so relentlessly. And, Rick, we love the fact. Uh, that we get regularly from you, new ads that have been put up. We get figures on spending. So we're really grateful to you. Thanks for being here, Rick. And, and look, I'm <clears throat> I'm thrilled to be working with Patricia Murphy
3: today instead of that Blue Steen guy who just blabbers on. <laughs> yeah, so you know, I'm happy to be here today. So
0: much better.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so much what, better. What, what, <laughs> I, as I've said before, we have got to get this Blue Steen a dent feud resolved, because this is not the way we roll at Political Rewind. (laughs) All right, let's get right to it. Patricia, we've now had six days of early voting. Our first of two Saturdays of early voting took place this week. And Ryan Anderson tells us that we have now had 837,628 people cast ballots, 59% higher than uh, the uh, uh, 2018 uh, elections, uh, early voting. Um, uh, Astonishing, astonishing.
0: Yes, that is a huge jump from 2018. It's about a 59% jump from early voting at this point in the last midterm election. So it's just shattering all kinds of records in terms of early participation of voters. Um, I would say there are a couple of um, factors behind that. Number one is the immense amount of money that each Party is putting into educating voters and really focusing their voters on getting out to the polls early. And they are telling them how to do it, when to do it, where to do it. They're blasting out information about when the polls are open, Um, the fact that uh, Saturday voting was required for all counties in the state for the first time, also that an optional Sunday voting day happened yesterday. And um, so the the parties are knew knew that there would be a lot of challenges to mail-in voting. It would be more complicated for voters. Voters. And so they really wanted to and knew that they needed to really invest in telling people how to do it when they knew that they could get there on time, cast your ballot and be done with it.
1: You know, Rick, one of the other things to look at here, according again, Ryan Anderson is the guy who we all pay close attention to. He, he operates the Georgia Votes website and he gathers this data. So far in the 2022 general election cycle, more than a million people have applied to uh, vote so the number you know is, is is even bigger assuming that many of those voters uh, will have their ballots accepted and we should point out that when we talk about the um, 800 plus thousand we are talking about a combination of in-person voting and accepted absentee ballots right
3: Rick and, and yeah and, and you know to see all those numbers for a nerd like me you know you just want to go through all that data. And try to figure out exactly what's going on. Um, if you look at those numbers, there, there's good news for a little bit of everybody. Number one, there doesn't seem to be a surge of female voters. That's good for Republicans. Does not seem to be a surge of young voters. That's good for Republicans. But if you look, you'll see 15% of these voters did not vote four years ago, and most of them are non-white and young. So that's good for Democrats.
1: Um, well, let let me, Chuck Bullock, I'd love to get your take. Rick's offered his on this. I do see that women voters are about 10% uh, uh, higher in terms of turnout so far than male voters, which isn't bad. Uh, black voters are uh, voting early at about 33%, which is bigger than the population in general. So how do you read numbers like that?
4: Yeah, what I've done is I've looked, compared the uh we have right now in our early voting with what we had is a total total turnout in 2018 and 2020. and based on that women are down by about a percentage point. Uh, blacks are up by oh, three two three four, four percentage points five percentage points over what the total was in 2020. And then in terms of the age distributions uh, only about six percent of the youngest voters were 18 to 29. Uh, where in both 2020 and 2018, it was around 15% of all votes came from them. And the same thing for 30 to 39, they they're voting at about half the rate early as they did total turnout in those two last elections. So where is that being made up was being made up with the oldest voters, which cast 45% of these early ballots. where in both 2018 and 2020, they were right around 23% of the total turnout. Um and whites are, are voting at a little bit lower rate than they did overall. You have 58, 59 percent of all ballots in 2018 and 29, 20, 20, and right now they're at about 55 percent of the early votes. So, as Rick said, yeah, there is the distributions we're seeing here are, are a bit different than what we've seen in the last two general elections.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tanya, one of the reasons, of course, that we're paying particular attention to the percentage of black voters who are casting early ballots is because of the uh, governor's race. Uh, because we have seen story after story, we've seen poll after poll, suggesting that Stacey Abrams is underperforming uh, among black voters and that she has not come close to basically the 90% of the black vote she really needs to win the election. So we're watching the fact that there is a t- uptick in black voters and wondering what it tells us about Abrams, about Warnock. We just don't know, do we?
2: And I, and I think beyond the, the candidates, um, one of the things that I can share anecdotally is that people are concerned about the impact of the new voting regulations that will you know, affect the, the lines or where they're expected to affect the length of the lines, whether people can have, you know, serve water or food or snacks or whatever, and want to avoid that. Um, and so that may account for folks making sure that they take advantage of the opportunity to vote
1: early. Patricia?
0: Well, I think looking at these numbers, the one that surprises me the most is probably the female vote, um, 54.5%. I will fully admit I had assumed that women would turn out in larger numbers because of um, the Dobbs decision and Roe v. Wade. And certainly that's the hope of Democrats. And when they are building in their belief that women – Um, will fuel their victory. Stacey Abrams often says, I don't think these polls are capturing these very large numbers of women who are going to go out to the polls because of the Dobbs decision. Um, but we're just not seeing that number. We're not seeing that that jump in turnout among women who would have a disproportionate effect on this result right now. Um, obviously, we don't know how any of these people are voting. We know how they typically vote. And this is just kind of a very typical to less than enthusiastic um Uh, certainly not a record turnout among women in a year that is otherwise historically really unprecedented over the last 50 years.
3: one One of the key things to remember about early voting numbers and compared to the past is that Democrats win this part of the election, but Republicans win on election day. And so when you read these numbers, are these, quote, Democratic numbers high enough? that when the Republicans show up on election day, you get the average that you need. As Charles Bullock has said, you're looking at a 29-29 election for Democrats to win. So yes, right now African-American vote is at 33%. Is that going to be high enough when the white vote comes out on election day that that average stays at 30 or 29 or 28? So it's really a race to score big points early for Democrats and then hold on on election day
1: turnout. Chuck, can you explain to our listeners what uh, Rick means when he says you talk about a twenty nine twenty nine election?
4: Yeah, the two components here are the, the
1: share
5: of white voters that a Democrat receives, and then the share of all votes cast by blacks. And so, if each of those is twenty nine, so if. The uh, Democrats can get 29% of the white vote, and if blacks cast 29% of all votes, that should be just about enough for a Democrat to be able to win statewide.
1: Tanya, um, let's talk about an issue here as we look at these early voting numbers. Um, Over the weekend, there were a number of Democrats who did the the talk shows, the Sunday shows, Um, and and, and among them was Bernie Sanders uh, and Nancy Pelosi, Uh, Sanders said the Democrats are focusing way too much attention on abortion as an issue that will drive voters to the polls. He said they really, the Democratic Party, needs to be looking at the economy, at inflation, about the fact that, yes, the numbers are high, but Democrats uh, probably have, he would argue, more solutions for how to deal with the economy. He talks about the fact that uh, Republicans like Kevin McCarthy and others are looking at making uh, programs like Social Security and Medicare potentially um, entitlement programs down the road. So, in, and these numbers do perhaps suggest, as Patricia pointed out, that this issue of abortion, which early on Democrats thought was really going to motivate women to go to the polls, it, it, maybe it's true that there are other issues that uh, the voters are, women voters, are more concerned about right now.
2: I, I do agree that kitchen table issues, particularly as it relates to inflation, the economy, kind of those day-to-day economic realities that people are dealing with, should be something that Democrats run on, especially given kind of the student loan forgiveness, the, um, the enactments that have passed that are to provide relief to Americans. Um, those issues should be part of what they are advancing as a primary agenda for what they will continue to do for Americans should they be elected into these offices. I don't think that it has to be either reproductive rights or kitchen table issues. I think you can advance both of them because they are affecting Different and significant segments of the um, Democratic base, but I don't think you should choose one over the other
1: All right. Meanwhile, Patricia your colleagues Chris Joyner and Mark Nisi toward the end of last week uh, Put up a story about Concerns in Georgia and elsewhere about radical influences and they're talking particularly about far-right extremists disrupting uh, election day at polling places um, the uh, And in fact, the uh, U.S. attorney for the Nor- Northern District, Ryan Buchanan, has now named an assistant U.S. attorney to handle election complaints, to investigate what's going on. Uh, and there have been concerns about this all over the country, that not so much groups like the Proud Boys, but individuals who have bought into this notion of a stolen 2020 election could become very disruptive at polling places and and interfere with the process, Patricia.
0: Yeah, there is also a piece of Georgia's new election law that really opens <laughs> the door to this, and it was langu- it's language that says any Georgia voter can challenge the eligibility of any other Georgia voter and any other amount of Georgia voters. So we have seen large scale challenges of two, three hundred voters at a time, more than a thousand at a time. From a single voter to say, I-, I don't think that these people are eligible. Um, the Secretary of State's office has had to come out with guidance to say you can't challenge people at the poll. You can't point to somebody and be like, they are not eligible. I know it for a fact. You know, you have to have a pre-planned, written-out challenge. Um, but Kathy Willard, on social media over the weekend, who is um, uh, head of Fulton County's elections, <laughs> which she may have regretted that decision, um, has said that this has <laughs> created a huge drain on resources for counties which are required to respond to these challenges it also creates this this atmosphere of society. From sort of citizen to citizen, Um, Steve Bannon's radio show recently put out a call with Cleta Mitchell, who was one of the Trump attorneys who pushed all of his election lie challenges in the aftermath of the election. She was a guest and said, "You know, we we are putting out a call to election watchers and poll watchers, especially for DeKalb County in Georgia. We know that's where the fraud is. You know, these those kinds of messages." land on ears who otherwise this would not be in their heads but you put this conspiracy in their heads somebody feels the need to act on that challenge out of some some sense of patriotism in their mind and you have a really dangerous situation where to your point it's not like the proud boys marching in with a bunch of guns it's your your neighbor coming in and challenging another neighbor or hundreds of neighbors and um really disrupting things in a way that could also become immediately very dangerous and it's a it's a yeah. terrible position for those poll workers especially
1: yeah chuck um i think we all many of us remember the really riveting and emotional testimony in front of the january 6th committee of the two fulton county election workers uh, ruby freeman and shea moss mother and daughter who talked about the threats that they got after rudy giuliani and trump himself um, identified them as trying to get uh, fake ballots into the Fulton County election system. So with, with that sort of thing in, still in, in, in our minds, we have to worry a bit about what's going to happen on Election Day, Chuck. Well, we do, right. And uh,
5: while, again, they, as, as Trisha pointed out, you know, these challenges have to be you know, written and well before the election, probably that message hasn't gotten to a number of these people who think that they can show up on Election Day. Uh, And and we have a bit of a deja vu taking place here, particularly within that statute. Now, doing the research for that book I did on the Three Governors' Controversy, Learned hmm. that you know there were 150,000 probably African Americans who registered to vote, first time mass registration in Georgia, and the Gene Talmage forces encouraged their supporters to challenge those in mass, and so in some counties, every single black voter who had registered got challenged, uh, and and you know a number of them were kept from voting. Uh, Judge Scarlett down in Savannah throughout the elections in south southeast Georgia, but it sounds like you know we're maybe on the verge of seeing similar kinds of things happen this year, at least with the number of challenges. And I can't imagine that many of those are going to succeed, but as Patricia points out, yeah, this does create an awful lot of work for the people in the election
1: offices having to just deal with these challenges. Mm
5: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: The challenges that have already come in, uh, have mostly been rejected. I think in Gwinnett County, 22,000 challenges were rejected out of hand. Um, and there were more in other counties as well. Um, Tanya, we talked about abortion just a a little bit in terms of uh, Democrats hoping it drives voters to the polls. Uh, You're the professor of law on the show today, so I want to turn to you to start us off on this. Judge Robert McBurney, Fulton County Superior Court judge, who I've said many times on this show, the hardest working man in show business. Every important (laughs) case seems to fall in his lap these days. Today he starts a two-day trial in which uh, pro-choice advocates have filed a lawsuit uh, calling for the Georgia so-called heartbeat abortion law to be blocked because it is a violation of the, st- of the state constitution's right to uh, privacy. Uh, help us understand the fact that our constitution in Georgia's right to privacy is even stronger, I think, than the U.S. Constitution, which was the basis for Roe v. Wade being decided in the first place.
2: Yes, Bill. So as you as you said, Georgia's state constitution provides uh, privacy protection superior to that of the federal constitution, and also has some of the strongest privacy protections of any state constitution. And so you can challenge a law both as violative of the U.S. Constitution, but you can also challenge it as violative of the state constitution, which this this uh, challenge is is asserting. The other basis for the challenge is that the Heartbeat bill is void and was void upon enactment in 2019 because at that time it violated Roe, right? And so the argument is it, with the reversal of Roe, it doesn't automatically revive the legality of the heartbeat bill. They have to scrap it and start all over again. Now, the, the danger is they could start all over again with an even more draconian um bill but at least um, this would provide while the litigation moves through the courts it would provide a stay if the judge orders one um, a stay on on the enforcement of the ban and I, if I if I may I just want to read a really super quick statement from Bernie who I, I just thought this was perfect the state has offered four reasons for canceling this trial we are quote we are busy with other things there are no facts in dispute we don't know what facts are in dispute, and you can't do what you're trying to do, the court's response detailed below can be summarized as, who isn't, there are, you do, and I can. And so it is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, actually, I, you know, Tanya, I'm glad you mentioned that. We actually read that on the show a few weeks ago. But but McBurney, Patricia, is known for his clever and sometimes withering uh, decisions. And let me... Uh, Patricia, mention one to you. Um, In August, uh, the plaintiffs in this case asked McBurney to block the law while their legal challenge, which starts today, was pending. And McBurney refused that, um, but he said he was not ruling on the merits of the case. And, Patricia, here's the quote. The question of whether it is constitutional for the state to force a woman to carry to term a six-week-old embryo against her wishes Even in the face of serious medical risk, uh, remains to be answered. You can't help but under—you know—he's hearing this case right now. That statement tells us a lot about where he stands, perhaps.
0: Yes, um, my colleague Bill Torpy did a column on Judge McBurney recently, who he called the busiest man in law, basically in Fulton County. He is overseeing. Um, Both this particular piece of the abortion challenge, he's also overseeing the Fulton County Special Grand Jury investigating Donald Trump for election interference. He's also involved with the Tex MacGyver case again uh, for the second time around. And so his courtroom is just like a turnstile of national headlines all day, every day but it's his decisions i think that have gotten him the most attention so far and in the twitterverse we call those mcburns because they are <laughs> so lancing on occasion and they really just cut to the heart of specific issues they don't play favorites with attorneys or sides of the case although sometimes they do but not forever and so he's been one of he's been a really um, important voice and then also a voice who really attracts and keeps attention because i think he's very accessible in these cases which are so important to have transparency in
1: uh, so Rick and then Chuck um, here we are two weeks from Election Day it's a two-day trial then McBurney takes into consideration and looks at what he believes uh, what the arguments are and he makes a ruling uh, um, we don't know if his ruling comes before the election or not but to what extent is the fact that it's even before the court today and getting headlines Um, of of importance in terms of the election cycle, Uh, Rick, and then Chuck.
3: You know, for me, I've always said I thought the only chance uh, Democrats had was the Dobbs decision, and that was even going to be uh, maybe a dubious conclusion. The problem is it, it just feels like it's faded. It just feels that way. And with Biden not improving, with the economy not improving, it just seems like it's going to be not the force that Democrats were hoping for. And if that's the case, even with the rulings, the possible rulings or uh, the headlines, I just, it just doesn't feel like it's going to make a difference. It's, you know, before, when this all started in the summer, this election was going to be called one of two things. It was going to be called the economy stupid after James Carville or the year of the angry woman, and it sounds like it's going to be the economy stupid.
5: Yeah, I uh, agree with what Rick's saying so far, but I think it's also possible that this two-day trial will focus attention once again on the abortion issue, and it may you know, drive some more women, uh, well, men, women and men to the polls which could be, uh, have an impact. Now, of course, if Bernie comes down and says before the election, don't worry here in Georgia, no, everything is off the tracks. So that law from 2019 is not going to take effect. Then that could have exactly the opposite effect, that uh, some folks who are saying I need to go and vote to make sure that I protect uh, women's rights on abortion. say, Oh, well, here in Georgia, no, no uh, emergency now. Yeah, I, I think I'll blow off the election.
1: So I can see how it could work either way. All right, uh, I do have to get to the first break of the show. I'll, I'll, I will make one point uh, that amplifies something Rick said. Uh, uh, President Biden himself the other day uh, said he thinks women and those who are pro-choice need to get back to the anger they were feeling in the aftermath of the, of the decision, the Supreme Court decision. So he gets what Rick Dent is saying. He uh, obviously agrees that the uh, fire may have gone out of that issue, and he is hoping to reignite it as we move within two weeks of Election Day. Let's take our first break of the show, back with more in just a moment.
3: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday
2: afternoon.
1: Professor of Constitutional Law Georgia State University, Tanya Washington, Charles Bullock. Professor of Political Science at the University of Georgia, Patricia Murphy political reporter and columnist at the AJC. And Rick, Dent, I, Rick, I introduced you at the start of the show as a political advertising expert, and of course you are. But, but I also think our listeners always need to remember you have deep experience working in politics. You served under three southern governors, including Zell Miller here in Georgia, um, and uh, you continue to be a consultant uh, as well to uh, political uh, campaigns. You served with Ray Mabus uh, uh, in Mississippi, Zell here and in Alabama, it was. Uh, who was the Democrat? Don, Siegel. Don Siegelman. Yeah, you're the guy who got him sent to prison. <laughs>
5: <laughs>
3: I, 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 I did. <laughs> uh, uh, you, uh, you, know, you, know, you could also argue working for three different governors, you could say, you know, he can't keep a job either. No. Well,
1: that, that, yeah. Well, we don't we don't think that's true about you, uh, Patricia. Let's just quickly touch on the fact that Lindsey Graham is so adamant in fighting the subpoena to testify in front of the special grand jury. The Eleventh Circuit, a three judge panel, said you got to testify. We wondered if Graham would take a next step, and he has now asked the United States Supreme Court to block his testimony. Um, and you got to wonder exactly why he's fighting it so hard. Is it a principle or is it that he's worried that maybe Brad Raffensperger told that special grand jury some things about the phone calls that Lindsey Graham made to him about the legitimacy of the election could get Graham in trouble uh, if he doesn't answer honestly?
0: Oh, I think there could be several things going on here with Lindsey Graham all at once. The first is that I think it's largely performative Lindsey Graham loves to be in the headlines all day, every day. That's not a pejorative statement. That's just the truth. (laughs) He's always drawn to the fire, and he's said that many times. He craves relevance in a way. Um, I also think that Donald Trump is watching every move of this special grand jury, and anybody who willingly goes before this special grand jury um, (laughs) is going to hear about it from Donald Trump, What? you know, I don't know what they would hear, but I'm sure it wouldn't be a good conversation. It probably might even come on Twitter. Um, And so uh, I think those are two factors playing into Lindsey Graham's effort to defeat this. I think also um, from an institutional standpoint, he is fighting this to say a U.S. senator should not have to testify in a setting like this over something that is a part of his, the legitimate function of his job. Now that's the nature of the exact challenge. Is this part of his job? Was this just him poking his nose in another state's elections? He's saying it's because he was, he is, uh, or I guess he's the ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and, and that's his business, is to uh, call secretaries of state and ask them if maybe they could not count some of those votes, which is apparently what he said To Brad Ravensburger. So I think there's a lot going on, a a lot for show and um, and some bit for substance as well to protect the prerogative of senators not to have to answer subpoenas like this.
1: Tanya, uh, he argues about the speech or debate clause, which is uh, prevents a sitting uh, member of Congress from having to testify to things that have done in their official duties in Congress. Right.
2: Yes. And, and, and that's the defense that he's asserting is that he made these calls, as, as Patricia said, in his official capacity um, as uh, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who's charged with reviewing election-related issues. And so that, that was the reason for the call. The counter-narrative is that he was part of the plot to uh, interfere in uh, Georgia's election. Um, and I think, The point that you made, Bill, is that we don't know what the grand jury also knows, about the nature right. of that call, right? I mean, not only could um, Raffensberger have shared the substance of the call, there may be a recording of it. I mean, at this point, I think everybody was recording everything. In Georgia, as long as you are a party to the conversation, it is legal for you to record the conversation. And so um, Raffensperger may have recorded the call, in which case, you know, that information is going to be presented to impeach the, uh, the the defense that um, that Senator Graham is asserting uh, against these challenges.
1: Uh, Chuck, we should point out that uh, the special grand jury wants to hear from Lindsey Graham on November 17th. They're very specific about it, so it won't be until well after the election. And in any case, grand jury testimony has been secret. There haven't been a whole lot of leaks uh, uh, from. The grand jury, even with all of the really important witnesses they've already heard from, Chuck.
5: Well, that's right, yeah. Uh, I guess one of the other kind of questions they might well ask him if he showed up in addition to whether there's consistency between what he tells a grand jury and whatever may have been taped is, have you, did you call other states? Have you done this in other election years? I mean, is this kind of standard part of what you do after an election, or is uh, this the first and only time you've ever called to ask Could there perhaps be some uh, throwing out of some of the uh, absentee ballots? And if he does this regularly, then, okay, that's part of his job. If this is the only time, it makes it a bit more suspicious.
1: All right. um, I'd like to do this, Natalie Mendenhall. Why don't we get our final break of the show out of the way a little bit early? Because I really can't wait to hear the panel talk about the ads that are dominating uh, the airwaves, social media, Uh, everywhere we turn right now. So let's take the break and come back and talk about not only the spending, but what are the messages that the campaigns are now trying to get across to voters? You're listening to Political Rewind. Welcome back to Politically. By, by the way, Rick, Dent, I don't like to refer to something that our listeners may not be familiar with. I talked about Governor Don Seligman. He did go to prison, uh, accused and convicted on corruption charges. But there was a lot of question as to whether those charges were politically motivated and, in fact, were legitimate charges, right? Uh, it was a mess. Let me just put it this way. It was a mess.
3: And, um unfortunately he made himself
1: vulnerable to that yeah it was a huge story obviously in alabama at the time it unfolded all right rick um you have been so great as i said at the top of the show uh, keeping us informed about spending about the ads that are current right now um you if do you mind if i read a few numbers to you that you sent to us all right in the senate race Warnock against Walker. Democrats have spent $130.2 million, Republicans $109.4 million in total. In the governor's race, Democrats have spent $59 million, Republicans $41 million. Those are just the headline figures in this race. But Rick, one of the things you tell us is that most of that money right now has been going into the Atlanta media market, right? Yeah, it shows. Uh,
3: $189 million of that total is in Atlanta. So, you know, right there, that number lets you know how important Atlanta and those suburbs are uh, to this election. And, you know, we've been talking about this all year. And, you know, I come on here and go, you know, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars and they're attacking each other. <laughs> And it's the same story because, you know, these numbers really don't mean anything anymore to people. They barely mean anything to me. But there is one distinction I want to make before we get into the ads. In 2022, they have tons more money than we did 20 years ago, but they don't have more arguments. And that's why all the ads sound the same, make the same arguments no matter who does it. Because when you start a campaign, you test every argument. If it doesn't do sixty percent or better among voters, you don't use it. So they may have a hundred million dollars to spend that we
1: didn't have twenty years ago.
3: They have the same number of arguments, and that's why everything looks alike.
1: Yeah, you know, Patricia. At a certain point, obviously, all of the campaigns, whether it's those the four top campaigns or down ballot races, are continuing. To urge uh, supporters to contribute uh, money to their campaigns, and at a certain point, I do think it's fair to ask, what more are you going to do with this money to try to persuade voters?
0: Oh, sure. I would say the one, the two campaigns that are in their own world right now are the Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock campaign on the chance that that does go to a runoff. They're going to need a lot of money to roll over uh, to get ready the very next day. Um, But I do feel like, and I think we saw this in 2021, there was just a diminishing return on all of this ad spending because people really do start to tune them out. They fast forward through them. They turn the mute button on. I certainly do that because so many of these ads, especially in that Senate race, are so aggressive and personal, Um, I was watching the weather with my daughter this morning and the ad came on with Raphael Warnock's ex-wife crying in the driveway. And my daughter was like, why is she crying? Who is that? You know, so these are just incredibly um, uh, dark, aggressive ads and people actively turn them off to avoid them in their homes. And uh, to me, that's not the world's best use of money. But, it, you know, they do it because they believe it works.
1: Well, Chuck, um, speaking of dark ads. Um, Let's play a new ad that the Walker campaign is running. It's an attack ad against Raphael Warnock. And it's an interesting ad because it's a it's shared. The spending is shared, I think, between the Walker campaign and the NRSC, the Republican Senate campaign committee. Uh, But let's listen to the message in this ad. And then, Chuck, you start us off in discussing it.
0: Joe Biden and Democrats like Raphael Warnock are radically changing America, destroying our energy independence, driving us into recession, opening our borders, teaching our kids to hate America, defunding the police, and allowing criminals to roam the streets.
5: Not on my watch. America is beautiful. We're going to rebuild it. Teach our kids to love their country, to respect police, to work hard, and most importantly, to love one another.
1: You know, Chuck, I pulled that ad uh, for play today because it's pretty typical of the themes that are happening in Republican campaigns across the country at at many levels right now. And the, 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 the narrator in that ad is so cheerful in the way she describes the way Democrats are destroying America and says, teaching our kids to hate America. Chuck, this is no longer about my ideas and your ideas. This is about basically good and evil. Exactly right. Yeah. And uh, we've seen, I guess this was stuff that
5: was released over the weekend, a new survey, not just done here in Georgia, but a national survey that shows that around 80% of Democrats think that Republicans are out to destroy the country if they get in power. And that (laughs) same percentage, 80% of Republicans think that Democrats in power will destroy the country. And so we see in this ad, a hearkening back to a happier, better time. And then the threat is that if Democrats control the U.S. Senate, then all those good conditions that you remember are going to going to change. You're going to be living in an entirely different world. So it makes this this political campaign existential, that if you don't get out there and if you don't vote and if you don't fight and if you don't challenge voters from the other side, uh, you're going to be complicit in the destruction of the world in which you live.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, Tanya, weigh in on this, please. Uh,
2: um, I really agree with the observation that the, the framing of this is like there's a zero-sum game, right? So either either side is going to take us to a really dark place where we don't want to be. And so that doesn't leave room for um, compromise. It doesn't re- leave room for much diplomacy. And it yields the kind of ads that we're seeing. The, the uh, line about teaching our children to hate America really taps into um, what has been a successful um, theme in Republican, uh, for Republican candidates around curricular reform in K through 12 and the CR uh, T curriculum. And so the idea is that what our children are learning in schools is going to make them less American and make them less uh, receptive to the positive aspects of our nation's history. What I think the response to that should be, and I think Democrats need to speak to it, is that teaching the truth of American history means that we celebrate the things that we have accomplished, and we also take lessons from the things that we could do differently. So that is going to yield, you know, uh, leaders in the future that don't repeat the same mistakes of
1: the past. Patricia and then Rick weigh in.
0: Yeah, so I've covered obviously a number of both Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock campaigns. In Warnock's campaign, he almost always uh, describes where he grew up in Savannah and public housing and the fact that he was able to go to college. Um, and is now a U.S. Senator, um, over this incredible arc of history from segregation to being in the U.S. Senate now. And he says, you know, only in America is my story possible. So. He is not on the campaign trail telling people to hate America. Um, At the same time, his campaign is also running these unbelievably aggressive ads about Herschel Walker, running Herschel Walker's ex-wife, describing being held at gunpoint by Herschel Walker. Um, And so I worry that whoever wins this race is going to be so damaged Um, obviously it'll be the lesser of two evils as we always hear, but it, it just, it makes it so hard for people to trust the people who are then elected. And I worry about the effect of that sort of on the fabric of our leadership once they're elected.
1: Such an important point, Rick.
0: You know, we're sitting here, we're talking about ads.
3: That split that those polls are showing that's happening because of these ads. Folks need to understand that, number one. Number two, you know, I've been around polling for 40, 50 years. Oh, God. And I can tell you, I have, <laughs> I have never, I have never seen the split that we have had in the last few years. It's not just Republicans and Democrats thinking the other is going to destroy the country. They live in two completely different worlds now and reality. And African Americans and whites live in two completely different realities right now. And the difference today than before when we've had split, there used to be bridges that could bring us together. And I cannot find those bridges to save my
1: life. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. All right. Um, we've played a course over the course of this show in the last, uh, in, in the last few months, the ads in which the Warnock campaign, as Patricia points out, really goes dark on uh, Herschel Walker talking about him holding a, a gun to his ex-wife's head and all of that. Uh, but let's also look at Warnock and a, a, a series of ads he's got up now, which are endorsements from voters across the state. Um, you'll see black and white faces when you see this ad, these ads on TV. There are at least two of them, as far as I'm aware. Let's just listen to one of them. I'm not in love with politics. I'm in love with change. I believe in Sir Warnock. If he
5: says he's going to do something, he's going to make it happen. Thank,
1: Thank you for your sir. service. I'm for you, man.
0: He has the moral compass, and he's committed to us. I think he's a good man.
1: I work for the
5: people of Georgia. Thank you
1: for you, Reverend Warnock has won my trust completely.
2: The divisiveness of the country just seems hey, insurmountable, but Reverend Warnock
1: gives me hope. That's uh, one of the positive spots that Warnock is running. And it's kind of the way, Patricia, he's running his campaign when he goes out and makes appearances. He tends, doesn't he, to have a rather upbeat message. He doesn't spend a lot of time on the campaign trail uh, attacking. He talks about all he wants to accomplish and feels he has accomplished. Yes?
0: Yeah, and he very rarely talks about um, Herschel Walker, almost never mentions Herschel Walker's name. Um, I think the dynamic here with Raphael Warnock is that he has right now so far a crossover appeal among some Republicans. And so Mm -hmm. he takes a very light hand and demonizing anybody else in the state. Part of that is also because he's a pastor and it wouldn't read real well for a pastor to be going bananas on somebody. Um, But he, uh, I think he is really working hard to just attract people to his side and not lose any voters, not losing any altitude. I think that was what was going on in that Senate debate as well. He barely went after Herschel Walker. I think he was trying not to come off as too aggressive, too angry, Um, didn't want to alienate those precious few Republicans who are also supporting him and Brian Mm -hmm. Kemp at the same time, Now he's got millions of dollars of ads to try and destroy Herschel Walker without his own face attached to it, though.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chuck, let's talk about, uh, we don't have enough time to play the spot now, but I want to turn to you first on this. One of the ads that is really getting a lot of attention for uh, for Herschel Walker, of course, is Vince Dooley sitting, looking directly into camera and talking about why he thinks Herschel Walker should be a United States senator praising him, answering some of the concerns about Walker, saying he's always overcome challenges, he's capable of learning. Um, you've watched Vince Dooley for his entire career at UGA. What's the impact of his doing that endorsement uh, in on TV ads? Yeah, uh, Vince Dooley actually audited my Southern Politics class
5: uh, many years ago. <laughs> 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 And what's more, uh, Vince Dooley uh, is, is a student of history. He has a master's in history uh, from Alabama, from Auburn, excuse me. Uh, looking at, I believe, the career of Tom Heflin. Uh I thought uh, I was surprised Vince kind of I thought went over the top saying that uh, Herschel would be a great senator because Vince is very well aware of who those great senators from Georgia have been. Uh, I would be surprised if Herschel, if he becomes, if he gets elected, would be fall into the great category. But that endorsement undoubtedly will help Herschel with a uh, number of the UGA faithful. Uh, but again, we're talking yeah. about people from 40 years ago. You know, you know Newer folks at UGA really doesn't have quite the cachet he did with uh, the people who were around when he was coaching.
1: I, that seems to me to be exactly correct. If younger voters turn out, and as we all pointed out at the beginning of the show, so far in early voting we don't see a surge, but they don't know anything about Uh, Vince Dooley, or for that matter, Herschel Walker's career. Patricia, we only have a few minutes left, but I do want to turn to one last uh, matter that affects directly the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Um, The AJC ran a story over the weekend. Um, uh, The Walker campaign sent a fundraising letter out in which it said that at a rally, at a Herschel Walker rally, um, an AJC male reporter was told uh, by the Walker campaign about the racist slurs being uh, thrown at Walker and the campaign and that in the fundraising letter it said the reporter laughed at, uh, at this, these allegations. Uh, there's no reason to believe that that happened at all, Patricia.
0: Well, let me tell you that did not happen. Um, our reporter who was at the event was a woman. She was told of the racial slur against Tarsha Walker, which she had not heard herself, and then did a back and forth with the campaign. Can you tell me more? Can you tell me the circumstances? Do you know who it was? Okay, we'll cover it. That fundraising campaign said that the AJC never covered that incident, which is also not true because we covered it in the jolt the very next day. And um, the Walker campaign has been told all of this and has done nothing about it and has not changed anything, hasn't apologized, hasn't put anything out in writing to follow up to say, oops, this was inaccurate. <laughs> this was somebody else. Um, but they're raising money off of something that just is literally fakeness.
1: Uh, re- real quick, Rick, one of the things about this, aside from it being fake news, it, the irony is that it's a Walker cam- It's Herschel Walker who looks into the camera in so many commercials and talks about, I'm a uniter, not a divider. I'm bringing people together. I don't think about race. Yeah, but it's interesting. You just called it fake news. That's exactly what Herschel
3: and his people are saying. It's the damn AJC. What do you expect? They're all fake news. So, you know, who are you going to believe? <laughs> you know, take the chance, take the money.
1: <laughs> Real quick, Patricia.
0: Yeah, one thing, you know, of course, this it, it's unfortunate that this happened. It doesn't change our coverage of Herschel Walker. We're still covering his events. We're covering his campaign, as we have been. Um, but we also felt it was important for readers to know about it.
1: Mm-hmm. We're completely out of time. Another day that I want an extra hour. NPR, give it back to us. The election is approaching. <laughs> Patricia Murphy, Charles Bullock, Rick Dent, and Tanya Washington, thank you for a wonderful way to start our week on Political Rewind. We'll be back tomorrow with a brand new show. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. Get a flu shot if you haven't gotten one. and Why not get a COVID booster while you're at it? Bye, everybody.